0: I just a song so you can sing along with my special guest star, two. two. You like to sing and dance, and this podcast by chance explores musicals for you. everyone welcome back to another episode of life's but a song second chance theater where we recover a topic but with a new guest i'm your host john and with me today is a returning guest but this is his first second chance theater episode it's matt koplick everyone oh my
1: god everybody thank you so much to quote the great patty Lupin as norman desmond I don't know why I'm frightened. I know my way around here. The cardboard trees. The, oh, sorry, that was Glenn Close. The cardboard trees. The painted scenes. The sound here. <laughs> I've had three glasses of rose, so I can't do the patty belt right now. Got it. We, we, yeah. we like vocal health, so I'm in Glenn Close mode.
0: <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I like how you switched it mid-song. You're like, no, we're just, we're not. We, I got you. yeah
1: (laughs) we we were gonna do patty and i was like it's it's eight o'clock at night and i've had three glasses of rose we're gonna do glenn
0: uh and it's such a good way to be in when we're talking about chicago
1: talk about pitting women against women i know right
0: um that so 2002 hello um The first chance was uh, uh, episode ninety-two with the guest Zachary James, but now it's with Matt. And I know Matt's probably chomping at the bit to talk about this. Have you done this on your podcast? I haven't, so I don't really do
1: movies on my podcast.
0: Well, I'm in Chicago,
1: so, so yeah, we haven't we haven't done the stage version of Chicago yet. I've been we're we're still in the middle. So, yeah, sorry. When does this episode come out, John? Um. I don't know, off the top of my head. Probably in July. Okay, we're recording this knuckles deep into Pride right now. So <laughs> uh, by the time this comes out, yeah, I think we'll still be working on the series that I've been doing. We were doing the off-Broadway-to-Broadway Broadway transfers, and we went on pause for that to cover the Tonys, and now we're back on the off-Broadway-to-Broadway Broadway transfers. So Chicago obviously does not really count there, unless you do the whole Encores bit, but that's a technicality. But um, oh, I didn't
0: know if like it was a previous like yeah, if you did like a Candor so, and Ebb. Yeah, so I, was, or... I was
1: thinking to myself, like, oh, would we do it in the future? And we could, because we've done like writers in the past. We've done like a Tessori series and a Sondheim series. So we could do a Candor and Ebb series. The problem with Candor and Ebb, John, I don't know if you know this. For every amazing, bonkers classic they have, they've got a shit the bed show. Did you know about this? Yeah. <laughs> 70 Girls 70. Who knows her? No one. <laughs> exactly. Except for you. Except Top for
0: four. me. And I barely know her obviously so as part of second chance theater i like to ask people why do you want why did you want to recover this topic
1: i did request this correct you did request this yes i i want to confirm because i've been known to be very aggressive sometimes when i go back onto people's podcasts like i i've twisted your arm a few times and then there are times you've come to me not knowing Uh that you've given me exactly what i wanted like you did (laughs) not know how much i wanted to do sound of music when you're like we haven't done this one yet you want her and i was like right oh. but, that was exactly the sound of music for,
0: for every sound of music there's cop rock
1: well yes cop <laughs> rock you punished me with you, you that was fully you going matt needs to be knocked down a peg which i appreciate we love being humbled uh i think I so i wanted to cover chicago and I'm so thrilled that you're that you're doing this second chance. I, first of all, I we love a queen who's willing to go back on her past and be like, well, "How how have I changed since now?" Um, right,
0: and and you know I'm finding a lot with second chance as well. The mood of the day that I watch this affects heavily my yeah. opinions on it. So I mean, this one though, still. 10 out
1: of 10 absolutely you have I mean. you had one flat in your past episode and i appreciated that you acknowledged that the flat was stupid because it was stupid but what uh, it, it yeah and, I, I, and I, I, i'm I trying i'm trying to give you john riley realness back to you john <laughs> riley because this is your critiques this is what i love about you you yeah. don't really fully stand by your critiques you more like it's it's like spur of the moment thoughts you have where you're sort of like you're like a one foot in the door of Reddit, one foot in the door of reality. And you're sort of like, but is this a flaw? And then if it's me and I say, no, you're like, okay. And then you move on. But it's like, that's your, that's your criticism. And I love it very dearly. You have, you're like the sorbet of movie critics. It's so, it's so tasty, (laughs) but it's not super like, you don't stand by it fully. I love it very much. It's why I enjoy talking with you.
0: I feel like also with this movie, Chicago, I mean, other ones, I'm a little more, you know, Part um, uh, uh, critical, and I can like be like, no, this was dumb. I hated sure. this. But like Chicago w- took a big
1: swing where and hits and, it out of the fucking park.
0: Yes, because like Rob Marshall, uh, this Rob Marshall, yes, Rob this Marshall was, directed it. Yeah, this was his first feature film. The only mm-hmm. other film he did before this was that TV version of Annie in ninety yeah. nine.
1: As as a as a director, for sure um yeah so to go back to your original question the reason i picked it is i maintain this is the best movie musical of the 21st century so far uh it is the best at movie adaptation of a stage musical since little shop of horrors yes and it is very much still my top five like i don't see it changing anytime soon it's a pretty perfect movie and when and I I look forward to talking as we continue with this, as we sort of deconstruct the movie and go into sort of the history of how it got to be made, because you sort of touched on this a bit in your episode. But like, I don't know Ooh. if your listeners know just how long it took to get this movie made and how many people were possibilities.
0: Well, because like when um, uh, Jason Kerr. Mm-hmm. You know him and everyone else knows him because he's basically on every other episode here, it feels yes. like. Uh, he likes to say that Xanadu killed the movie musical. And then somewhere between um, Moulin Rouge and this movie, Chicago, coming out, like it it revamped and revitalized an interest in movie musicals.
1: It's... It's very easy to say stuff like this. And I'm not saying that to throw Jason under the bus. I love Jason. We had a great on time at your at your birthday concert. Yeah. It's 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 always as is the case with life, it's always a little more nuanced than that, right? Right. Like every yes. so truly the so like we look at the sixties, the Mary Poppins, West Side Stories, Sounding Music, Funny Girls, Olivers, like the big, big movie musicals where studios would throw all their money in and be like okay this is gonna be our temple like they used to movie musicals used to be like the marvel films of hollywood um if you're if it was a show that did well on broadway people were excited to see it studios would throw all the money at it because it also could be prestigy they could possibly win an oscar and they would do the road show and all that stuff but what happened was that as movie musicals started to fall out of fashion as we headed into the 60s, West Side Story, My Fair Lady, Mary Poppins, Sound of Music, Oliver, Funny Girl, all sort of happened like one year after the other, like in a slew, mm-hmm. yes.
0: which,
1: gave, which gave studios the wrong impression that big movie musicals actually were back in fashion. And that's not really the case. It was, you know, those were good ones that, t- that were special and unique. And... As we're, and, you know, as those musicals were at a high point, you could also look at the same timeline and f- seeing how movie studios were also fucking up at the same time. Because as Oliver Finding Girl is happening, so is, you know, Julie Andrews in Star. Rex Harrison and <laughs> Dr. Doolittle, um, Paint Your Wagon, these things. And then as we head towards 1969, we've got Hello, Dolly, which is sort of the final nail in the coffin of those 60s movie musicals. People like to say Hello, Dolly killed the movie musical. It didn't. It was the end of that kind of musical because it was so expensive. Oh, yeah. Um, and then into the 70s, we go into sort of the counterculture movie musical. Fiddler on the Roof is sort of the transitional movie. And then we get Cabaret and we get Godspell. And like these uh, Jesus Christ Superstar, these movie musicals sort of made for people who don't really love musicals. Greece, you know, kind of an anomaly. Xanadu killed it in the sense that like with Cabaret, Godspell, Fiddler, Jesus Christ Superstar and Greece, there was a false hope that maybe the movie musical could come back to its 60s glory. And Xanadu was sort of like the, well, oh, here we go. Yeah. So it killed that. And then the 80s, we got a few more movie musicals sporadically, and uh, they were more sort of the popcorn uh, counterculture, like Little Shop and Bess Little Whorehouse in Texas, both of which are movies that did very well. Uh, Whorehouse made way more money, but Little Shop, we all look back on it, we're like, that's an extraordinary movie and and is still considered high art. Then Disney Animation brought them really back to the forefront. And it... Wasn't it, it really wasn't until Moulin Rouge that movie musicals were back in the conversation of quality and box office? Because everyone thought it was going to be Evita with Madonna, and then that actually came out, and we all changed our opinion. Oh right, they forget about Evita. It, well, and there's a reason. But, mm-hmm. So the thing is, like, and this is because I'm a fucking. Am I, I, am I allowed to say the f word on your podcast? say it yeah i'm a fucking faggot john so like i love researching this kind of shit it makes me it it gives me joy in a weird way that human beings don't but uh i was i was researching the avida movie because talk about another movie musical that took forever to get made and had everybody attached at one given point like at one point it was going to be diane keaton and francis ford coppola think about that for a minute and right no Truly, like wait, um,
0: Francis Ford Coppola as directing
1: or in? Yeah, I was going. Well, every single director in town was going to direct it at one point. Francis Ford Coppola, Oliver Stone, uh, Michael Cimino, uh, like everybody, and Diane Keaton was attached at one point. Uh, fucking Charo, Olivia Newton-John, Michelle Pfeiffer, Meryl, everybody. That makes sense. So, so Avida, it was the most expensive movie musical in a while. It was a prestigious tony winning musical it took you know 15 years to come to cinemas madonna was going to be in it it was an event and everyone's like okay this is going to be a best picture contender this might be the thing that legitimizes madonna as a movie actress and well and we roll our eyes but like they they did win some golden globes It the reviews were mostly like it's not terrible and it actually did okay at the box office but it did not set it a flame and they didn't, and they only got like a small handful of Oscar nominations. Moulin Rouge comes in in 2001, and it was not meant to be an Oscar movie. It was meant to be sort of like a flippant, oh, we're giving Baz Luhrmann a little bit more money to do what he wants. Nicole Kamen wasn't quite an A-lister yet. She had just forced Tom Cruise, and the others had come out that summer. And Moulin Rouge came out around the same time.
0: And Ewan McGregor the- was still like relatively unknown because this is before. Or right around the Star Wars. It was
1: right around Star Wars. Ewan McGregor was sort of like a list indie actor because he had Velvet uh, Goldmine and um train spotting. So he was yes. he, he was who like the Cinephiles knew, but middle America had no idea who he was.
0: Right. It was really John Leguizamo, if you think about it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, John, I mean, and and Jim Broadbent for, like, you know, the Merchant Ivory people, (laughs) although I'm not even sure Jim Broadbent ever did a Merchant Ivory movie. But, you know, like, those people who go, I see Howard's End and Sense and Sensibility, those people. (laughs) But this was... That summer was a big summer for Nicole because that was the others in Moulin Rouge back to back. And it was like her first foray out as a movie actress, minus Tom. And both movies hit really hard. And then Moulin Rouge ended up just sort of sticking around all year long and ended up ser- being a surprise Best Picture nominee. And right. everyone was like, oh, well, that was a fluke because that was pop songs. And you have the Nicole Kidman of it all. You know, it that was nice. But that what we didn't realize at the time was that Moulin Rouge had set the ball up to be hit by Chicago, which comes in and like dozen not Moulin Rouge did times 10 and became a cultural phenomenon yes. as well as being critically praised. So it was, we haven't really had a movie musical like it since, and we're going to cover another one in a later episode that is able to cover one half of that, but not the other is a cultural <laughs> phenomenon move moneymaker, but not critically uh, uh, praised. Yeah. Is not considered like high art Chicago yeah. is. And and Remains so. And we we knew at the time that it was good. I remember how much, how much we all thought it was good at the time and blew my mind. But I think with every passing year, especially as the false hope of other movie musicals being as good, keep on not happening. We've gotten some good ones, just nothing as good. And so we come back to Chicago and we go, God damn, this movie is a magic trick.
0: And also... I did talk about this last time, but I'll tell you it again. Like you watch this movie and you go, "Great job, Rob Marshall," and then he, the next thing he does is nine, and you're well, like,
1: "The next thing he does know. is Memoirs of a Geisha." Well, I mean, music. I, I, music. I, I, I know. Yeah, they're they're all honestly they all line up as the same category as like, ooh. But Bill Condon too. Bill Condon wrote the screenplay. Bill Condon does Dreamgirls, which like has its moments, but is a much bumpier ride than people are willing to admit. And both he and Rob do garbage Disney live-action remakes. No one associated with Chicago has fulfilled the promise of the movie musical since then. The only one who's come close is Queen Latifah, because she does Hairspray, which is a very right. good movie.
0: Uh, But where I was going is that he tries to use the same shtick that he used in Chicago. And for whatever reason... It really works in Chicago, where the music is coming. The musical numbers, except for the book-ended ones, are in Roxy's mind, mm-hmm. and that's strictly the movie because the show is the show. It's a it's a Broadway musical, like yeah. they don't try to sit there and justify why they're singing. They just sing.
1: Okay, uh, we won't talk about Nine too much because this episode's not about Nine. But right. Chicago, when it premiered in 1975, do you know what it was billed as? A play with music. No. Close, though. Chicago, a musical vaudeville. Uh, The original concept for Chicago, the musical, because, I mean, I'm sure you know a little bit about the inception of the show, right? Like, Gwen Verdon wanted to do it. It was her baby. Yeah, um, and
0: there there is like an actual story that this is based off of. I there's a think.
1: play. There's a play called Chicago that it's based off. Yeah. Of. Okay. Um, I don't ask me the name of the actual woman who wrote it, but it's Mary Wilkes, something or other. Uh, she was a reporter in Chicago during the times of these trials of you know women shooting men and it all becoming for publicity. And she wrote a play called Chicago based off of all of this, which um, got turned into a movie called Roxy Hart starring um Ginger Rogers.
0: Yeah, so it's Maureen Dallas Watkins.
1: There we go. I don't know what I said. Maureen Dallas Watkins. I yeah. said something that was like ten degrees of that. Close enough. <laughs> I said. I said. Oh, I said Mary Wilkes. That's. A, I think that's an actress. So that uh, yes. Gwen Verdon, I guess, had seen the movie Roxy Hard and then found out it was based off of a play. She wanted to get the rights, and Maureen would never sell them because she had sort of she became like a born again Christian and said it was sinful and all this stuff. And it, it took until she died. For them to buy the right to make it into Chicago the musical. And Bob Fosse agreed to make it for Gwen for many reasons. Uh, If you want to know more about that, watch the miniseries Fosse-Verdon and take half of it as truth. But they make it into this musical vaudeville. That is sort of the way in that Fosse and Cantor never like this is how we can adapt this. This play takes place during the height of vaudeville right before it dies because of radio you know we'll do it we'll present it as this so most of the songs they don't really spring out of dialogue you know it's not like the bench scene in carousel where music and and dialogue flow in and out songs are very presentational in the stage version of chicago they're they don't really come out of dialogue and so when people were trying to adapt it into a movie they were like how the fuck do we do this because there's a whole sequence where roxy just talks to the audience and then does a number about her name like how do you make that into a a number because movies by their by their nature are much more realistic so you either and we've talked about this on your pod before like when you're adapting a stage musical into a movie you kind of have to go in one of two directions you either have to go hyper realistic or you have to go Extremely, the other end and go into musical uh, theater fant- land, yeah. Yeah. and fantasy, yes, which is what Moulin Rouge and Chicago do so well, and you know for decades no one could crack this movie. Fosse was going to do it, and he was going to do it with Goldie Hawn and Madonna, and then Fosse huh. died. I know, right? And and it, also that just would never have worked, especially at the stage of life Fosse was in when he was developing it. He had kind of lost his creative touch by the by the mid eighties, and also the stage version is while very good it's harsher and darker and i imagine Fossey would have made it even more so
0: are you talking about the original 75 production or
1: the both on i mean boards. the 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 revival that's still playing on broadway it's the same material as 75 the presentation is a little less harsh but right. it is right. it, it it is still a cold musical it is it ha- there's not a lot to grab onto emotionally with chicago as a stage show which is something that the movie changes a little bit um and i'll get
0: the revival like minimalized it
1: they stripped it down physically physically
0: yes yes. because it's basically the orchestras on stage um they're not wearing really any color as it's all black black and white and then like they bring in chairs and things like that and hold lights at one point it's it, it, it there's no like big set pieces or anything. And like, I feel like this movie did pay homage to that, but like not in a, we're paying homage. Look at us.
1: Well, it homage. pays homage to the attitude of the stage show and, and, and both the revival that's still running in the original 1975 version, which is, you know, the sexiness and the, you know, 1920s jazz baby era and and a, and a darkness in visuals, but the stage version, you know, no one really comes out well or starts off well, other than maybe Amos, who is even dumber in the stage version than he is in the movie. And Roxy is like pretty much a stone cold bitch from the moment it begins to the moment it ends. And the movie changes that a little bit, which I appreciate and we'll get into all of that. So my point is, is that. No, Fosse dies and so does that version. And then it's sort of in limbo for a decade. And Nicholas Heitner, who directed The Carousel, I love so much that we've talked about on this podcast. He became the director that was going to do it. And he was going to do it with Charlize Theron. And again, the 90s, every woman you could think of was in talks to do it. And uh, Nick Heitner dropped it because Nick Heitner also has realized over time that he's not much of a movie director. He's really a stage director. And he'd had a few like minor hits in Hollywood, but he knew it wasn't his medium. So he dropped out of it. He was like, I can't handle this. I'm not, I'm not a good enough film director to do this. And Rob Marshall got a meeting with Miramax to discuss making a movie of Rent because his Annie on ABC had done so well. Oh, okay. and because Rob Marshall was a, was a, Broadway Hooper, who became a choreographer and then choreographer slash director. I think his first foray as a stage director was he co-directed The Cabaret with Sam Mendes as well as choreographing it. Okay, Yeah, because he he had done choreography for Damn Yankees and She Loves Me on Broadway and company, but that was, I think, his first time co-directing. And then he choreographed The Cinderella for Brandy, he choreographed Mrs. Claus with uh, Angela Lansbury, and it was his first time directing. And that had done so well. Miramax is like, okay, we're bringing you in because we really want to make Rent into a movie, and like we, I think you're gonna be the new guy to make movie musicals. And Rob Marshall, smart cookie that he is, he's like, I'll take the meeting sits down with you know the weinstein assholes and the first thing he says out of his mouth is i have no interest in making a rent movie i'm the last guy you'd ever want to make rent and if you ever seen rob marshall you would understand what he means like rob marshall is a sweetheart who like has no business making a movie about drug addicts in the east village
0: nope he's he's the song and dance man you know because he also he also choreographed uh the annie that he did
1: You did. It's literally like asking Quentin Tarantino to direct an episode of Heartstopper. Just like it's, even though both are very legitimate, they do not mesh. And so matt i've i've missed you continue i missed you Wait, do you want me to say that a little cleaner for for the instagram asking nope. rob marshall to direct rent is like asking quentin tarantino to direct an episode of hard there you go so <clears> there <throat> that's that's for instagram that's for social thank you <laughs> you're welcome
0: so, you're producing yourself on my podcast i love it
1: <laughs> i've watched episodes of the bachelor before not for years, but I've seen it. So I know what it is to produce yourself. So basically Rob goes like, I have no interest in doing Rent. And they're like, why are you here? He's like, because I want to do Chicago. And they're like, well, no one knows how to crack it. And he came up with the concept of it's all the numbers are in Roxy's mind, which makes sense because it takes these songs that are essentially, non-die- uh, that are essentially non-diegetic. And, and not based in the scene work and justifies them in a movie and also makes them make narrative sense because every you it makes you figure out how you're going to present every number and it's okay how does this make sense to Roxy And the whole thing becomes sort yes. of um disassociation and actually makes her character more uh, makes her character deeper because you're seeing these numbers from her perspective because they're all, her way of coping with her reality because to roxy the only thing that matters is being famous and successful and being on the stage and therefore all these very real world things can only make sense to her as a musical number
0: because like to extrapolate even further like when you get to when you're good to mama Mm -hmm. it's like you're hearing queen latifah sing like literally the inner monologue of what roxy's seeing in life yeah, exactly. And so when you're cutting back and forth with all the match cuts and everything, we the audience are understanding without actually like being like, "Oh, I get what you're doing," or like, mm-hmm. you know, it's yeah. all these little visual things that you're just that. God damn it!
1: It's so good, <laughs> and and they establish that that's what's happening pretty early on. They ne- they're never overt about it. It's clear. It's very clear, but they're never like, in case you missed it. This right. is what's happening. They established that that vocabulary very early, which I appreciate. And yeah, it's just so good. Because the thing about Renee Zellweger's Roxy, and I was so happy that Jason was like, this is my favorite Renee Zellweger performance. It's my favorite one of hers, too. Uh, and I say this is... As- oh, sorry, Zachary. Zachary. Jason Zachary. did Mamma Mia. No, Derek did oh, Mamma Mia.
0: Derek did Mamma Mia. Jason is the one that said Xanadu killed oh, him. Oh, Xanadu, himself. yeah. yeah. Zach-
1: so Zachary said it's his favorite um, Renee Zellweger performance, and I agree with him. And I say this as someone who will go to the mat for her having an Oscar nomination for Bridget Jones's Diary. That's a nomination that is so deserved. But,
0: yeah. but, she's... but, but like, you've got Rob Marshall who directed Annie, which is mm-hmm. g- great. It's good. It great. But like, you're giving him a feature film budget now. And then you've got Renee Zellweger who is kind of known at this time. She's not the she... Renee Zellweger we know now.
1: Well, yeah, no, she was no, she was a movie star for sure. This, It's so hard to look back on movies that are iconic with famous people in them and like really get into the mind frame of what was happening 21 years ago. Right. Right. Um, she was she was known. I, I would say she was like she had she was, just sort of yeah. she had just sort of opened the door to being A-list at this point because Jerry Maguire is what put her on the map and then right. she spent the rest of the 90s not really finding the right vehicles and then nurse betty refocused that which wasn't a huge hit but it won her her first golden globe and it was sort of like oh you're not the basic girlfriend of chris o'donnell in the bachelor you are a quirky ingenue movie star we need to get vehicles for you right and so then she does bridget jones's diary which is like and me and myself and irene which is whatever but bridget jones's diary is like gets her oscar nomination and it's a huge hit it's like oh you are now above the, the title star, Renee yeah. Yeah. and then
0: and then we have catherine zeta jones and richard gear who are well established oh, at this point yeah
1: very much so and, and then
0: they bring in queen latifah who's she really was a wild card television yeah. yeah but she like a wild card but like the four those four actors we didn't know that if they could carry the music of the show
1: yeah, so Catherine Zeta-Jones got her start on the West in the West End, at, in Forty Second Street, and Richard Gere had been on Broadway in Greece and in a play called Bent. So it was one of those things where unless you were a deep faggot, you didn't know. But it, and and the internet was not what it is now, where it's like yeah. it could these things could get spread around like wildfire. You know, like when um. On, like, if, when the Lame Miz movie was being cast and, like, people were had doubts about certain actors, people could go in and find their stage credits from 25 years ago.
0: Yes. But, it like, wasn't,
1: but, it wasn't quite that.
0: And I do remember seeing, like, a behind the scenes video of them being like, oh, I did this. I did that. I, I was yeah. in this musical. I did that. So, but, like, the movies that they've done that people who are going to buy tickets to mm-hmm. see Chicago in theaters didn't know these people as musical actors yeah. they knew queen and- latifah as a musician as an artist music yes. artist
1: but it was it was the opposite end of the spectrum we have we have catherine yeah. zeta jones uh renee richard gear john c Riley. people were like oh you are actors who we have seen before and we like but can yes. you handle the music then we have queen latifah where was like by all accounts probably could have handled the music before anyone ever saw an an inch of you know celluloid but we're like but can you handle the acting i don't know And also, like, not to, you know, bring up shitty subject matter, but like, Queen Latifah is not a Caucasian actress. And there was a lot of talk of like, well, is that historically accurate? But Rob Marshall comes from the theater world. He did it with Annie. They did it on Broadway in the 90s, where like, color conscious casting matters to Rob, which we appreciate. He was like, I'm going to make this as inclusive as I can without like, you know, shutting down production because, like Lucy Liu, also while she is while she was a big star, we have uh, an Asian American actress playing a an heiress. The, I mean, these are things that people thought about. I mean, let yes. me just tell you, these, yes. these were thought about at the time. And ultimately, it's one of those things where talent wins the day, no matter what. And when everyone has something to prove, the product tends to be better because no one is coasting. Everyone is like, this has to be good because they won't let us do this again if it's not.
0: Because like even the last time re listening to that episode, it's just like we're just loving it, and like we're loving this yes. because it the big risk that they took with all the casting and Rob Marshall doing it, be, be, an unknown director at the time, paid off. That twenty one years later, we're still talking about it. And yeah, it's. I feel like you're not the only one. I need to reexamine and figure out what my movie musical list is all-time list is this is on there for sure i just don't know what placement it is probably top 10
1: i will give you that well i mean if we're talking about movie musicals of all time that's a little trickier because then we get into like wizard of oz singing oh true so but if if we're so i like to be i like to narrow it down just a bit and talk about movies based off of stage musicals which is already like a super it's already a super long list of movies um i think the top five best movies adapted from stage musicals are in no particular order because i don't want to cause a fight with your listeners because they're going to yell at me so of course they can they can decide how the order is but these are the five for me um sound of this this chicago oliver little shop of horrors and cabaret i think those are the top five i agree with you yeah Yeah. i don't know what order they're in personally but i I have my order because but then also like because it's not just you have i also take into account like if it's an improvement on the stage show, what do they change? Like if we're talking just like based off of night and day, taking something mediocre and making it amazing for me, that's Oliver, which if you saw Oliver and encore speaking of Chicago, you watch that stage show. and You're like, Oh, right. This is like 10 amazing songs, five decent ones. And then five crap ones with a book that is stupid. And the movie is like, okay, but what if we made this good? And it's just like night and day. Um, but, yeah, by, the,
0: by the time that they because this is i mean this movie came out what six years after the encores yeah trans- and it, transfer to broadway
1: we have this movie to blame for chicago still running on broadway
0: god damn it but then like i said they do pay homage to it when uh cell block tango is really what I'm thinking of where mm-hmm. they're having the, the sexy, you know, bra panties, girls really, dancing. Yeah. The,
1: the like fishnet bodysuit. Yeah. Yeah. Cause this movie also plays fast and loose with um, historical, historical accuracy, especially in terms of costuming. But I think that's on purpose, you know, because it is a musical and because they're also doing color, blind slash color conscious casting like let's not make it hyper realistic let's make it more sort of an impression of the 20s because that'll get people more on board with this being a musical and with having queen latifah as a position of power having you know lucy lu be this like nationally renowned
0: heiress having the cell block tango be what it an, is l- a- all all uh colors
1: of this uh, under the sun exactly having all these women in the prison be every color of the wind those are choices that you make and you go okay how can if we're gonna do it's when you're making shit like this you have to go if we're gonna do this what else do we have to do to get the audience to accept it and it's it's this game of chess and it's why when movie musicals work i am so happy because it's so difficult it's difficult to make a musical work in any medium, but a movie musical in particular, especially one like this, is just, I'd watch it every time. I'm like, God fucking damn, this thing slaps. And I have no notes whatsoever. I do and... have to
0: say, though, um, I didn't say this last time. Mm-hmm. I was kind of nervous revisiting it before doing that episode. I hadn't really watched Chicago in a while. And mm-hmm. it was like, a oh, I remember liking it. Oh, I don't know if it's going to stand the test of time and everything, and then like it fucking slaps. It like does. I don't know what he, what God he prayed to to make it work for this long, but really yeah. this. I mean, no notes. I got, I got nothing.
1: I have no. I have, I have one note, and it's not their fault. It's because of budget reasons, and we'll. I guess we'll get into that. Are we doing sharp and flats for this? We are doing sharps
0: and flats. Yes.
1: I've got one flat. It's and similar to your flat last time. It's not a real one. It's just one of like. It's it's me going like haters. I see it as well. So like, calm your tits. But I also want to tell you. I was.
0: I was going to say like after. Like, after watching them do Roxy in the movie, I just wrote perfection.
1: Like, Perf- it, there's per no fucking way. faction, John. My fucking got it. Like, and also, and then also, the, sometimes the metaphors of these visuals, because c- Roxy, that whole number, it begins with her looking in mirrors all the time. She's wearing this diamond, silver lavalier that has all these reflections. Because all she's is doing is looking at reflections of herself. It is fucking brilliant for all of it
0: yes and then also i i mean uh, i don't know if you'll agree with me on this but when they do we both reach for the gun i wrote down type top 5 mu- movie uh top 5 movie musical sequences in uh all movie musicals i've seen to date yeah but so seriously because it was just like you've got it, uh, um you said that the music in this show is presentational you know mm-hmm. it's like we're singing to you audience we're making a point We're being funny and everything. And then Rob Marshall, the goddamn genius for this one movie, he is. Exactly. Created these concepts. And he was just like, okay, so. Because in the stage version, she's supposed to be a ventriloquist dummy for that. Yes. Okay. So then he's like, great. Now, press, we're going to make you puppets. Mm -hmm. We're going to make you. They're all
1: controlled by Billy.
0: Yes. And you're just like, this is amazing and then it tur it like it builds i mean yes that's how the way the song is written and everything but even with the choreography and staging and everything it builds that like there's some shots of the press just like doing somersaults in the air and you're like
1: Whoa. super cut with pieces of things happening in the real world so while every so I mean, yes I- I, we could talk about, like, well, what's happening in the scene? Everyone who's listening to this podcast knows what's happening in the movie. So we're going to just assume that we don't well have to... Over- yeah, we're just going to do shorthand. We're not going to yeah. explain. We're not going to over-explain. This is not Christmas on the Square, y'all. Um, no. But welcome back, Christine Baranski and Matt Koplick. I mean, hello. Yeah, hallelujah. But and Oh, and, I, and I'll also mention why uh, Mary Sunshine is usually in drag. Um, but so... Oh, thank you, because I never knew that. Well, it goes back to the vaudeville thing but we'll in a second so um you know one of the things that the movie does with the whole like everything happening in roxy's head no number ever really takes place solely just in the fantasy other than i think roxy everything else is intercut with real world stuff um yeah other than roxy and all that jazz but all that jazz takes place in real time all the fantasy numbers are intercut with real world stuff happening so you see what is inspiring roxy to think of these numbers um and so, with we both reach for the gun. There are a couple of times where it is cut between the real press conference and the fake con- press conference. One of the cuts I love is when they do the "Are you sorry?" and Renee Zelberger goes, "Are you kidding?" kidding. And they I'm cut kidding. to the they cut to the real 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 world moment of that. It's and her line Perfection. delivery of that is incredible. Are you kidding? She is still my favorite, Roxy. But so, and I've seen a few. But so, when they get to the end. And it's building, it's that chaotic moment. And as you said, reporters are spinning and Christine Branski is just flying round, all the way across. Round, and they yeah. They cut it up with real moments of like Christine Bransky at her desk, finishing up the article and giving it to her editor and, and other papers releasing it and showing the headline. They both reach for the gun. So you're seeing the real world implications of the fantasy that Roxy is living in. Yes. And yes. it is the one thing that this movie does really well, more so than the stage version, in my personal opinion, is remind you that these are actual people. This is happening to. While everything is a show and it's all entertainment, there are actual lives at stake. Sometimes, um, yes. So cause... an example, because in so in the stage show, the Hunyak getting hanged is sort of the moment that's supposed to scare Roxy into cooperating with Billy and doing the the trial. And they still do that in the movie, but they do it better in the movie. But I digress. When go to Hell Kitty, Lucy Lou's character, right? Mm-hmm. We hear the story of what went down with her and her husband, which is that she comes home to find him in bed with two other women. And he's like, there's nobody here. Gaslight. What are you talking about? But so they cut that up with Richard here telling a table of people at this swanky club where everyone's drinking and smoking and living the high life, laughing about this amazing story, intercut with Lucy Liu pointing a gun at her husband and two innocent women or semi-innocent women and shooting them. And then the final shot of, of that scene is the second woman runs to the curtains to hide, and she's the last person that Lucy Lou kills. And it's just there's like a two-second beat before Lucy Lou pulls the trigger. And you just sort of see her like shaking her head, no, like, please don't do this. And then Lucy kills her, cut up with Richard Gere and this this table laughing about like, it. Yes. To them, it's this hilarious story. But to Lucy Lou and these three other people, they fucking died. Like these people had lives and had jobs and family members and friends and it's gone now and the movie isn't saying to you live in this moment know what's going on because before you know we move on to the next thing and you know tay Diggs says good night folks and we go into the next scene and we're back on the entertainment front but it's the movie reminding you like we're not unaware that murder isn't funny like we're we know this we're telling you about a time when this was pure entertainment where honestly sometimes it still is. And rem- and telling you like it's not just about this. There are other things at stake, and it's and something that the stage show doesn't do. Because when they do the Go to Hell Kitty section in the stage show, it's played for laughs as a pure vaudeville sketch. And right,
0: because- and he- and even um, in Selbach Tango, mm-hmm. the uh, Lipschitz yeah, one Maya's character in the movie, like that is played for uber laughs. But in the movie, it's not really. Yeah. It is,
1: but it's not. I mean, the, the cell block tango in the movie. This isn't really a note, but I just remember this was a complaint of some people at the time: is that none of the women played their monologues as comedically as some people would have liked. And I just don't think that's sort of the tone of the number in the movie. It's no. still funny because, like, the punchlines are fucking funny. I guess right. some men can't, some guys just can't hold their arsenic. Like, I'm sorry, that's a funny line. But like, um, e-
0: but like, even when she says and Irving
1: with the everything in. Yeah. yeah
0: she it doesn't seem like i'm doing a punchline no these, like i've seen on the stage version No,
1: the movie emphasizes the anger of these women that led them to do what they did yes and so they're they're not like going over the top have you listened to the cast recording for the original broadway company with cheetah and gwen no i have not okay um admit that. so the the movie soundtrack is my favorite recording of this of this score, even though it has some numbers cut. After that, it is the original version, which is fucking fire. But the women doing the the monologues for Selbach Tango in the original, they're living their bitstresses' lives. But the woman who does um pop the pop monologue, yeah, I, okay, I'm gonna try to do her justice. Give me a second. Okay, so she's she she's got a very high pitched voice, and she's doing like a Long Island thing. She goes. Some people have these habits that get you down like Ernie. <laughs> Ernie likes to chew gum. No, not chew. Pop. So I'm going to this one day and I'm really <laughs> irritated. There's Ernie lying on the couch drinking a beer and chewing. No, not chewing. Popping. So I said to him, I say, Ernie. <laughs> pop that gum one more time. And he's he dead. It's, that is what she does. And it's fucking funny. And I, but that line reading is always in my head forever. So I said to him, I say, Ernie. And that's that attitude on stage as well. But so the movie is like, yeah, no, it's funny, but, like, these women are fucking pissed, living in a world that is ruled by men and just, like, fucking yes. tired of it. You also asked in your, epi- your last episode, is this movie anti-feminist? No, it's very feminist. But the thing about feminism, and in the same way with all uh, forms of independence, is careful what you do with it. Because sometimes shitty people get reins of the ship and they do stupid shit with it. But...
0: I also can't believe I asked that question last time.
1: You, you sure did, I and I sure wanted to did. bitch slap you through my earpods. And I was like, John, you know better than this.
0: Um, well, be, well, because like it's always through the men in a way that's coming in to save save the day. And I was just like, I don't understand because like they're very powerful, strong women, and they clearly, like you said, are pissed. Right. And the and like even even Mama is like abusing them because she has yeah. the power to do so. It's, it's
1: more that everything is just transactional, which is the truth of entertainment in general. And again, it's the 1920s, you know, I don't know how many women lawyers there were. It's, it's just the way the world was, uh, but also, I think when you asked it in that episode, it was a sorbet question. It was it was a classic John sorbet question. We were like, I don't really believe this, but I want to put it on the table to see if anyone bites. It was it was very bad. It's true, it was. But like also re- watching it now
0: again for this episode, it got me thinking that the stardom that these uh, that like Roxy and Velma and and Go to Hell Kitty and then the woman at the and in the trial who kills the lawyer and the husband and everything. It made me think of like internet stars these days or mm-hmm. rea- reality TV stars and all that. And I'm using giant air quotes around them because like they're, um, what does he say? You're a flash in the pan. It's a couple of weeks and no one's going to give a shit about you. And I was nope. just like, that's celebrity these days.
1: It's, it's but that's celebrity always. There's some celebrity that comes from, Creating something that lasts, and then there's the celebrity of like you did one thing that caught on for a second. You're not actually real, right. and it's a matter of how you use what you would what people took, uh got, uh, gave you attention for. Whether you're able to parlay that into something else. Lord knows I fucking hate the Kardashians, but I respect them for taking something stupid that could have been a flash in the pan, and they turned it into an empire. Yes. But for most people, you know, people say like, oh. She's the moment, this is the moment. Yeah. Things like that. That is true. Roxy is the moment, but this is the thing about the moment. Moments are fleeting.
0: Right. You so it's not it's not the praise. Like yeah, that, it's not yeah. the
1: praise that people think it is. Uh, because it's like, yeah, no, you're the eight girl right now, and then Wednesday is another day. It's what makes actually I think makes Roxy smarter than smarter than Velma. Velma is far more talented than Roxy is. Roxy is smarter because Roxy is able to take having absolutely no talent coming from nowhere and is able to milk it for all it's worth. She she usurps Velma very quickly. And then when it seems like she's going to get usurped rather than taking it lying down like Velma does, Roxy is able to make it go longer with a pregnancy story and then is able to swallow her pride when it all goes away again, team up with Velma and make something of herself and do what she always wanted to do.
0: Okay, so I did posit this question to zachary and i'm going to posit it to you mm-hmm. nowadays hot honey rag is that real or is that in her mind
1: which nowadays because there are two the the
0: one that combines the two the, where the two of them perform it
1: the The performance they do is real the okay. first nowadays is in her mind
0: yeah because it, then it leads to the audition yes the which is world. which is real
1: which also i gotta say i also gotta say my okay Sorry, it's something else i love it's a, <laughs> it's a, it's a it's a voice uh thing that renee does so we've we have the we have the singer roxy in the in the fantasy sequences right like um we have her and honey honey roxy um the the nowadays bit and like not gonna lie like renee sounds fucking good sounds real fucking good in those numbers to the point where we were like i don't know for like the 1920s where anyone could get on stage if they blew the right person like why wouldn't roxy be on stage and then you watch her in her audition in real life, and like the voice is fine, but it's not the voice that's playing in those in those fantasy numbers. It's far more cupy doll and like a little pitchy and breathy. Yeah. And like, oh, I see. Like it's not that it's impossible to get her on stage, but she's not as talented in life as she is in her fantasy. It's very crazy ex girlfriend, where Rachel Bloom said it was like a whole point to make Rebecca sound better in her fantasy than in real life. In her life, yeah. And not to usurp Rachel Bloom, but Renee Zellweger did it first. Oh. Hey. Just just saying. She got it from somewhere. <laughs> um, I don't know where to go. The the other thing that
0: I that got me thinking this time around, watching it though. Mm-hmm. So Roxy clearly hates Amos for whatever reason. She doesn't, she doesn't hate him. Or no. she she doesn't love him. Sure. I don't think Roxy's necessarily capable of love. Uh but sure. I was just like, why are they together? They never I, I don't know if this is in the Again, it's been a minute since I've seen the stage version yeah. or, like, like looked up things. But I don't think they really define how they got together.
1: So, this is, again, where, like, the stage show is a little meaner. Uh They have – Roxy has a monologue before her song. It's a little longer on stage. The,
0: how you doing? I, the, the, I love you, honey. I, I love you.
1: I love you, honey. I love you, yeah. yeah. But she, before that moment in on stage – she, when she talks about how Amos came along, she says, "You know, some guys are like mirrors, and when I catch myself in Amos's face, I'm always a kid again. You could love a guy like that." Got it. Um, okay. Which is, I should have, it, just which is a ha- It's a half sweet line because it shows you in the stage version, like Roxy is not unaware that Amos is a good person, and she's not unaware of how he views her. But that also kind of makes her even more of a bitch because you're like, oh, you're aware and you're fully manipulating this guy. The Roxy in the movie. And basically uh, we could go on for this movie forever and ever, but I think something I want to do, I thought about this before to, I think just solidify how amazing this movie is. I want us to eventually just sort of break down the whole opening sequence, the overture into all that jazz and just sort of talk about that for a little bit. Okay. In Like details. Cause I think that is a perfect example of what makes that whole movie amazing, but
0: finish your Roxy and then we'll go yeah, to yeah. all that. jazz. The
1: Roxy of the movie is not necessarily evil she seems a bit stupider at first and a little too trusting. What we... what It sort of shows us when she's doing the monologue in Roxy is basically like she was... She wanted to be on stage. She wanted to be in Vaudeville, maybe even Broadway, if she ever made it to New York, and just rejected left and right. And then Amos comes, who is just... Could not believe that someone like Roxy would give him the time of day, and he'll never say no to her. And that is something... That can make her feel better about herself. I have somebody now that I can always go to who will never reject me. And he's I also like have... security. Yeah, He's he's got money. He works. She has a line where where they say to her like, "Oh, um, no, works at the garage here. or something." Right? Like they say they say to her after Funny Honey when um the prosecutor is knows that she does it, does it or the prosecutor knows that she killed Casley and he's like, "Oh." Amos over here was a was a meal ticket. She goes meal ticket. He couldn't even afford to pay my liquor. Like she, Amos does not have a lot of money, but he can provide them a life. That would be okay if he, if Roxy a did not you know have visions of stardom, but also like she can't even be sexually fulfilled by Amos. Like Amos isn't even good in bed. He's not even he's not even mediocre. He's just flat out bad.
0: Yeah, and, and that, that's it, not enough for her. And that's in the monologue before yeah, Roxy. Even... I love
1: you, I honey. I love you. I started. Fooling around and then I started screwing around, which is fooling around without dinner. Uh in the musical, Roxy kills Fred casely purely because he decides he's gonna stop having sex with her, which is cold blooded. In the in the cause it's it's literally lines, that's final, huh, Fred? Yeah, I'm afraid so, Roxy. Oh Fred, no one walks out on me. Bang, don't sweetheart me, you son of a bitch. Bang, bang. I gotta pee. In the movie, And we will show this. We'll talk about this a bit more in the opening as we deconstruct it. It's clear that Roxy, in addition to finding Fred Casely sexy, because it's Dominic West who wouldn't, but also he's told her like, oh, I know people. I can help get your foot in the door and get you back in the theater circuit. So it's sort of like two birds, one stone. This hot dude wants to help me get back into theater. Let's we'll keep fucking. And then when he turns on her very quickly and reveals that he's never had connections he was just using her for sex and she thought they had a connection as well and when she tries to appeal to the human side of him he gets violent with her it shows you that like she's not killing him out of cold blood you know she's killing him out of
0: it is kind of defense
1: it's like she wasn't wrong it's part defense part desperation part delusion because she's not killing him while he's about to attack her. He has shown that he can be violent. He has shown her that he was lying and he has shown her that she's never going to amount to anything. And those three things combined at like 11 o'clock at night is just, with, you know, all the things that's going on in her head has made her, you know, desperately reach for a gun and shoot him. So it's not cold-blooded, but it it's far messier than that. And yeah. then because of all this, we see this wounded bird that is Renee Zellweger and we... Kind of rude for her because we don't think she's totally wrong to kill him, but she's also not totally right. But also, maybe she shouldn't waste the rest of her life in prison because of this one moment for a dude who was like a fucking douche. But then, as the movie continues and she starts to get wiser and sharper, we keep thinking back of that poor wounded bird who got pushed into the wall. And we're like, no, but like ultimately, there's good in her, right? And then by the time the trial happens and ends, and Amos wants to take her back home, and she's not even interested. Like, oh no, she's fully far gone. She'll never be that person that she might have been. Like Right. She's... The movie,
0: the movie kind of turns her into the cautionary tale of like what happens to people when they become a flash-in-the-pan celebrity.
1: Yeah. And get addicted to that dope. That fame and stuff. Exactly. Yeah. And 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 ironically, the movie kind of still rewards her anyway, because the same thing with the movies of the stage show, it was like, this is no morality tale. Uh, it's not like, oh, she bottomed out, died, and that's what happens when you murder for fame. It's, she and Velma, Velma still get to be famous for how long, we'll never know. But in that moment, they're still riding high. And it's sort of like, yeah, no, the world isn't fair. Sometimes crappy people do crappy things and still get what they want.
0: But there's also an, a way that Velma could potentially kill roxy or vice versa because they want to be even more famous than the other one
1: sure sure yeah, it, I it think...
0: could be but it, it, they're not the movie's not saying that this is just me being a dumbass reading too much into I it i think that's
1: the david lynch sequel We're, yes right, that's the um Twin peaks sequel <laughs> i think it's for me it's more of you know they're not necessarily creating anything they've made an act for themselves and they're back in the headlines but The thing about entertainment, especially when you're not a writer or a a painter or whatever, like when you're not making something that can sit there and last for a while, you're always having to think of new ways to stay relevant. It's kind of exhausting. You know, actors have the short end of the stick so much because even the most famous of actors, they're always looking for the next job, right? It's why we now see more actors who are going into producing or writing or directing because it's just sort of, you need to kind of keep, your skills honed for anything that's to come and creating opportunities for yourself. And so even at the end of the movie, while they are riding high, it's like, okay, but how long will it last? And like, what will they do for the next thing? Right. Yeah.
0: Right. All right. So all that jazz.
1: Okay. So it,
0: I just want to say. It's so good. And I'm still, I, I'm still confused as to how it would be a duet, but continue.
1: Sure. They they set it up for a second. If that's, the, that's the musical theater land of it all, right? It's like we show you for a second that there's supposed to be two women on stage and then 30 seconds and you forget and it doesn't matter. Um, I like to think that Velma is just a baller and that she goes, Okay, between me and my sister in this number, which line do I want to do tonight? I'll do this one. I'm gonna I'm gonna do this dance piece because that's that's more fun. Uh, but I think ultimately it's just musical theater fantasy of we see the two spotlights. Eventually becomes one. And we're like, okay, we're abandoning the concept that this used to be a, a duo act to just make it Catherine Zeta Jones. But from the moment it begins, we have the zoom in on Renee Zellberger's eyes, which we are not quite sure what that means at first until the movie continues. And we go, oh, it's all from her perspective. All the numbers are in her head. So it's like already visually telling you how you got to think of the musical numbers without even telling you. And we right. get these quick cuts of the club, of the of the band, of the dancers, of the audience. We have the stage manager backstage asking, "Has anyone seen the Kelly sisters?" So we already know that like there's somebody missing in this scenario. We've got legs showing up out of a cab who comes past a poster in the alley that says the uh, Velma and Veronica Kelly. She rips the Veronica part off, and we're like, "Oh, who's this bitch? What happened to Veronica?" And then goes in,
0: goes, goes she runs upstairs to her runs dressing upstairs. Room. Hides, a Hides gun. the gun, washes, washes her hands. Her hands, hands blood. He laughs. Where's yeah.
1: Veronica? She's not herself. I'll do it. Don't sweat it. I'll. I can do it alone. Which is already foreshadowing. Uh, yes. Bout and then, and then, <laughs> yeah, and then goes on stage to start the number. The number begins, and then on top of that, which also that homage of her rising from the floor. That's straight out of the Broadway version as well. Both the revival and the original. Velma rises from the floor to begin all that jazz. Because all that jazz in the stage show has no. Basis in reality it's just an opening number intercut with roxy fooling around with fred casely and then shooting him there's nothing happening narratively speaking with that number this movie gives us that and then we see that roxy's actually watching the number from the back of the theater and then we have that cut moment of the to do cut that cut and then we see renee on stage singing jazz
0: is it her singing it no, is her i singing. never
1: knew this if it was her singing or if it was katherine
0: zeta jones
1: that jazz is Renee. Okay, it's the it's the one note in that number that Renee sings. Great. Um, yeah, because it, it's it's far more like. I don't mean to say this negatively because I love I love her singing voice in this movie, but it's far more nasally than what Catherine does. Catherine sings from the throat. Renee sings through the nose. Okay. Yes. Um, yes. It's a very different timber, uh, and that that fantasy gets interrupted by Fred Casely, and then like from that moment to the end of the number moments of choreography of all that jazz mirror things that are happening in life like when he smacks roxy's ass as they leave the club we then cut to velma and the chorus boys dancing by slapping their ass like it's all just mirroring things of like Mm -hmm. life imitating art art imitating life it's just so fucking good which is also
0: kind of a foreshadowing tool for us the audience to realize there's be like match cuts everyone there's going to be match cuts so many to it Dead used to it.
1: Yeah. That is how these things happen. Have you seen the movie Amadeus? Yes. Do you remember when he's composing uh, Magic Flute and his wife has left with their kid and his mother-in-law shows up and she's like, I told her to leave and I told her because you're selfish. She's selfish. You're selfish. She it's been like, a while this... since
0: I've seen it, but this is sounding familiar. Yeah. Yep.
1: She goes to super high pitch and he's watching her shout at him in this very high pitch and it cuts right into Queen of the Night for Magic Flute and it's sort of like Gives you this concept that like, she has inspired him to write this super high aria. And it's, it's that it's, you know, what happens in life will imitate will inspire our art and there will always be a mirror and it'll always imitate. And you watch sort of how Roxy and Fred make their way from the club to her apartment to to full-blown fucking, and in those moments we have the match cuts of certain moments of choreography Renee's arms going up on the door which matches what Catherine Zeta-Jones does the rolling down of the stockings the legs Mm -hmm. and then also when um while she and Fred are having sex and she grabs the the bed frame and then grabs her uh the photo of her and Amos married and turns it down down.
0: but then also that's matched with the choreography that Catherine and the gays are doing on stage
1: Catherine in the gaze, and then that line as we um, penance to the final verse. Say it again, Fred. You're a star, kid. My little shooting star, which is all Roxy needs to climax, which I love. And then <laughs> the final moment of the song is Velma on stage, and she sees the cops. The police show up, and and she and she has that great little like shoulder bump. She knows what they're there to do, and she's like, "Fuck it, I'm gonna finish the number." Boom, hit the <laughs> high note finishes it, flourish, it's great. And it, it sets up everything we need in the movie. We have our two leading ladies, what they're about, what's where they are heading into the movie, and Velma is an established performer. She has a sister. Sister's clearly dead by her hands. We have Roxy, who wants to be on that stage. She's cheating on her husband with another man. She wants to be famous, That's because being told that she's is a star is enough to make her fucking orgasm. And then on top of that, we see that there are going to be moments where numbers are not going to be diegetic cuz when we watch Roxy watch Velma she then has a fantasy moment of herself on stage and we know now that visually that'll happen in the movie it just sets up everything it sets up our story it sets up the vo- visual vocabulary the musical vocabulary it's perfect it's
0: you're you're perfect. basically you're saying all that jazz is the thesis statement in a, of the visual of what we're of getting,
1: everything of, of the whole movie of, yeah of what we're getting yeah yeah It's so good. and It is.
0: And you know, also re-listening to the first chance, um, I did ask why they cut class. And I understand because Roxy is nowhere to be seen.
1: Yeah, that's 1000% why they did it.
0: So you're like, I mean, it also does drag the scene a little bit. Mm -hmm. But because they established, and I've talked about this with other properties that like they establish a rule, but then they break it and you're like, I don't understand. Or they don't establish a rule at all. Like, this one establishes the rules of the yeah. musical. It's one uh, of my
1: biggest critiques of the In the Heights movie. Is like, they'll either not establish any rules, or they'll establish a rule and then completely break it five minutes later. Right. But... Or
0: or you watch Hair and you're like, we're in musical theater land, everyone. Get, get used to it.
1: <laughs> the Hair movie is like, Laws of gravity. Never heard of her. It's...
0: <laughs> right, but I mean, like, I'm using that as an, as the uh, another one that it's like we have a rule. We're just singing. Get yeah. used to it, people. Hairspray. Get used to it. Like, I mean, it's all about dancing yeah. and performance. But like, when we're singing, it's just happening. We're just we're just doing it. H-
1: yeah, hairspray. Hairspray. I would argue was actually another modern version of a stage musical that does a great job setting the tone at the opening number of like already it's full-blown musical people are gonna be singing in the streets get used to it this is our protagonist here's her journey this is also the tone of the humor of the movie her singing on top of a garbage truck like there you go um singing to rats there being a flasher and her just like bopping around like it's Belle and Beauty and the Beast it's right yeah yeah. so so it's not very well
0: but like this one at least gives you the rule Roxy is imagining almost all of these
1: songs. Yes. And they go further into it with Funny Honey. So they establish that it's going to happen. And then for the next number to happen so quickly after all that jazz and to just be fully that uh, theme of it being in her head, it's like it allows you to lock into it forever, which is just so... Uh, and th- it's just so good.
0: And I did talk about this last time. Like that one also shows you like, she's also imagining what she's wearing and what people are wearing to be a glamorized version. Yeah. And like, you really, you really see that with queen Latifah mm-hmm. in when you're good to mama. Cause you see her, she's got like the weird, no makeup at all makeup look in mm-hmm. the real world. And then she's the glamazon. Yeah, on stage.
1: I think they said she's inspired by Bessie Love in the movie. Don't call me on that, but I'm pretty sure that's what her like look and vibe is for when you're good like to that. Mama. That's
0: that's this is I'm this is one example where it's not like she's not wearing the same thing or she, like she's not yeah. styled the same way. Like Amos in um, uh, fuck cellophane in cellophane. It's supposed to look like that hoboish clownish. Thing he doesn't dress like that in the real world, but like that—that's more so like his personality and everything. And then, yeah. but when with when you're good to mama, it's like perform more performative. I yeah, feel like.
1: I th- I think so because something you have to kind of ask yourself in these numbers is how deep does Roxy's mind go? You know, right? How is she so self-aware? or aware of her surroundings that like she can think of, you know, someone. So is this deep or that deep. And I think with cellophane, it's sort of, it goes right to the edge of what would be considered realistic for Roxy's um introspection. Right.
0: Well, and sorry to interrupt you, but like, I oh. just, I just remember too, Roxy is nowhere to be seen in that.
1: Scene. Well, the, the shot right before cellophane happens is a reaction shot of Roxy in the paddy wagon watching Amos as she leaves. That's what launches. You're elevate. right. You're right. Yes. John, when I tell you, I've seen this movie so many times because I've thought about this and it, and supposedly what they did with class, because that number is such a crowd pleaser on stage. And they really wanted to find a way to keep it. They, mm-hmm. so they, they recorded it. They filmed it and they did a test screening. And they're like, let's, let's get Renee and let's get her to let's like do a reaction shot where like she's it's in between days of the trial. Cause I think something that the movie implies is that the trial happens like in one day and i think it's supposed to be over the course of like two or three days
0: it's it's there's some time definitely because all of a sudden uh it's supposed i think class is supposed to happen right before uh velma gets the diary
1: it is yeah she gets the diary right after the uh, right after the number is supposed to happen but the idea was that in order to justify why the number would happen is that it's the end of the first day of the trial. Roxy's on her way back from the trial and sees Velma and Mama and imagines class. And so they they re, they shot a reaction shot of Renee doing that. And ultimately, they were like, it's too far-fetched. And also, like at this point in the movie, we just need to get to the climax. So we just got to cut it. And it's one of those things where... The musical theater fan of me is sad we don't have it in the final movie, but the movie fan of me knows that that was necessary. And the only people I know who are upset about it are the diehard Chicago fans who just basically want the movie on, uh, want the musical on film. And it's one of those things where adaptations have to make concessions in order to work in a new medium, right? Because
0: you can't. There is like if you break the fourth wall in a movie, it's. It feels differently than you're breaking the fourth wall at a show in a live
1: event. You can't go back once you've broken the fourth wall in a movie and you have to be very careful about when you do it. In a show, because the audience is there with you, you can sort of gauge when it's too much. And in a movie, you can never really gauge that. So you have to be really strategic about it, uh, which is why so many movies don't break the fourth wall. I mean, also on stage, like you are just granted more time, you know, you can do an intermission and therefore you can do like two separate hour long sections or whatever. You're you just get the benefit of more time or as a movie, it's pretty much straight through. So you have to make it as tight as possible. And the Chicago movie is so tight. They're basically Uniqlo jeans. They you just can't get out of them. It's so it's there's not a wasted second in that movie. And it's
0: when is the intermission? Is it the Hunyak it's, stuff?
1: No, the intermission of the stage show happens right after Roxy reveals that she's pregnant.
0: Right, because it's I know a girl. And I know a
1: girl opens act two, yeah. So originally there was a number... This was in the shooting script and they cut it before I think they ever went into pre-production, because they ultimately decided they needed to... The second half of the movie, they, they were like only numbers that are absolutely necessary. Like, we gotta get to the end. And they were gonna do I Am My Own Best Friend, which is the number that closes act one and ends with Roxy revealing that she's pregnant. And originally the concept was going to be for the film that Roxy and Velma get into this cat fight and they both go into isolation cells and they sing it from their separate cells. And they were like, eh, let's, it, it's not a bad idea in terms no. of like how to make it work it's the,
0: the face i'm making is to like imagine it to be like
1: okay yeah no i'm looking at your i'm looking at your face and i see your face being like i'm not mad about that i'm, I'm like not i'm not mad about it either it's yeah. absolutely a good concept but it it's one of those things again in a movie musical you know you want to pack the first 30 minutes with as many numbers as possible to a you know keep energy up and just constantly remind people that this is a musical and then right. as it continues and i don't know if you notice this with other movie musicals but the numbers get more sparse in the second half as like the story and the drama kick in
0: no i i definitely noticed that with this one because it's like all that jazz a little bit of a scene to establish the murder funny Mm -hmm. honey when you're good to mama and then cell block tango the first four numbers happen back back to back to back to back
1: yeah Within the first twenty minutes, for sure.
0: Yes, and then and then it's like we're introducing Billy Flynn, the new character. So obviously, all I care about. Yeah. Um, and then he's like, "Okay, event the big events that you know leading up to the trial we obviously need the songs."
1: Yeah. So, so. After um, I can't do it alone. That's when it becomes longer stretches of dialogue in between numbers, mm-hmm. and and you're and, not. It
0: doesn't. Die though. Like the energy no. doesn't fade. Because I mean, obviously you're watching Masters of the Craft on screen. Short.
1: At... The movie has a secret weapon of just because there's not a necessarily musical number, there are still sequences that require visuals and music, like the Hunyak hanging sequence, the go to Hell Katie shooting sequence, or they're all shot like musical numbers. And so even though they're not actual songs themselves, they're still those kind of musical sequences. So it's really I mean, after, so after I Can't Do It Alone, we have Mr. Cellophane, Razzle Dazzle, and Nowadays. And then after that, the Hot Honey Rag. We only have and, four numbers after that.
0: But then you also have the Tap Dance.
1: Yes, the Tap Dance, another musical sequence, but not technically, but not speaking, technically a not number. Saying. The Hunyak disappearing act, the Go to Hell Kitty sequence. Getting like, eaten. yeah, it, it, it's all interconnected. So it's able to keep the momentum going. And it's the same thing with the Sweeney movie. The Sweeney movie, there, or stretches where there's no actual singing but Tim Burton made sure to have music always playing throughout the movie so even if there's no song happening the momentum and the motor is still going which is something that a lot of movie musicals lately have forgotten is that you need to have a constantly running motor if you're going to keep an audience engaged
0: right cuz you, you you can't have just pure quiet <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's something that it's one of my issues with the most recent West Side Story, which is overall a very good movie and has some amazing highs, but also has some mediocre lows. And for me, it's because Spielberg knows how to make a movie, but I don't think he actually knows how to make a musical. Yeah, there are long long stretches of that movie where I'm like, this is way too much silence. There needs to be music, especially in the first 30 minutes. I'm like, we are taking our sweet time to get to these musical numbers and it needs to be wham, bam, Bam. thank you, ma'am.
0: I, speaking of momentum and everything, I, I don't mean to hold you, but like, is there anything else you want to talk about before we get into sharp and flat?
1: No, I guess well, I get, I'll get into the rest of them. Sharp and flat. Uh, I think my last final take before we get into that is, um, I could make an argument as to why this movie is exceptional and why people should watch it, but um, just know that I say it's exceptional and I have amazing taste. So, <laughs> and that'll be the last quote of the the post. Uh. <laughs>
0: uh all right, let's get to sharp and flat, shall we? Sure. Sharp Flat. flat. So in this section, we're gonna highlight some moments whether or not we talked about it. If we liked it, it's sharp. And if we didn't like it or thought it could change, it's flat. And then because this is the second chance, we're gonna see if John, me, has new sharps and flats or agrees with his old ones. So, Matt, the time is yours again. Go. Do you, what do you want to start with? Do you want to start with sharps? Do you want to start with flats? What do you have more of, out of curiosity? Sharps. What obviously. do you think I have more of?
1: Net- naturals. You have more natural. Yeah. I was <laughs> saying, John, did you go to state school? Why are you acting so silly right now? Um, uh, oh, I also wanted to say, so it's not a full tangent but just to answer your questions mary sunshine is usually played oh, right. by a man in drag again because the original concept of the show was a vaudeville so there were like specialty acts and things like that and so uh a countertenor in drag is mary sunshine and they didn't reveal that mary sunshine was a drag part on broadway originally and i think they still do this in the revival where it's the first initial of the actor and then the last name it's like d sabella yes. or yeah and so originally when billy flynn did his final speech to the jury of like things are not always as they seem took you mary sunshine like off. Yeah. well and then in the original also like ripped them out of their moo to reveal like boy chest and and panties and oh yeah shit. and then part of me also wonders if like it was fossey and Freda being cunty because maureen was so rude about the rights for so long and that part is maureen that's like who she's that's who she wrote herself in as and they're like well to fuck you bitch from the grave because now you're dead we're gonna make you a man in drag but yeah that's that was always why and rob marshall's like we're not doing that in the movie because the movie is more realistic it's not hyper realized and by the way like i want christine baranski in here so here you go
0: (laughs) i just want christine baranski to sing color torah the end
1: she uh, honey i love her very dearly she don't have the range
0: i know she tries she
1: tries. She sounds very good in her little bit of reach for the gun.
0: Yes. Anyway, sharps, flats, what do you want to start with?
1: I'm going to start with my flats because I have so few of them. Okay. I've just, I've just one. My one flat is the CGI subway train going across the street and all that jazz.
0: I did write that. I was just like, this, uh, I said this movie still holds water, except the CGI is terrible. And it, but like, I think it was always bad. It was bad it,
1: even then. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I don't think it was good by any means
1: but it's and it's just budgetary stuff they shot the whole thing in Toronto they had a 40 million dollar budget which sounds like a lot in 2002 but remember that that included all the star salaries and pre-production they they spent like a month and a half or two months rehearsing this thing before they started filming it
0: they had to yeah
1: yeah they built a whole lot of sets for it that whole that whole club is a set Um, and so the cell the cell Yeah, all of it. No, so much of it is just fully built built sets. So I know that they did the subway car because they needed like one establishing shot of like we swear this isn't Toronto, this is Chicago. So they did that subway car to do that. And it's not that like the subway car looks like roller coaster tycoon. It's just like very clearly not really in like something that was shot there. So it's one of those things where I'm like, if they had another million and a half dollars, they could have made that look a little bit better. But they didn't have it, and so like. I won't begrudge them that, but like that's the only thing in the movie I look at. I'm like, she's not perfect, and I'm and I think if the movie were less perfect, we would be less upset about it.
0: Right. Yes.
1: Totally. Okay. Then what are your sharps? So the movie starts at zero seconds. (laughs) A minute and fifty-eight, an hour and fifty-eight minutes in. I have there's, that's my whole sharp. Okay, uh, great. <laughs> no, I, think this movie, I think this movie is perfectly cast. I want to sharp the entire company. I think everyone's exceptional on it. I wanna sharp the arrangements, which don't even sound all that different from the originals, but like there are certain elements of it. The whole way they begin Cell Block Tango is different from the original. The uh bum bum. Uh, yes. Bum, bum bum bum. That's all original from the movie and it's iconic. Um I wanna sharp
0: you, Have you seen have you talked to anybody who's seen this movie for the first time, like, recently? Um, like, no, like they... because
1: I'm I'm only friends with cultured people, so everyone's well, seen it times.
0: I just want to be... I just want a... Per- call to action, people who are listening, if this is your first time watching this movie, congratulations, welcome. I'm but so also, happy for you. <laughs> but also, when we got to Cell Black Tango and you heard the dripping water, did you know that a song was coming? Because... Yeah. I don't know. I, I, I don't remember if I did.
1: That's the thing is it's just all so very inventive. And again, from people who had something to prove, which is why it just slaps so hard. Yes. When you get too complacent, you don't make good work because uh, you're not challenging yourself or others. But yeah, I want to, I would love to watch this movie with someone who's never seen it before and, yeah, and get And be like, reaction. what is your
0: take? Did you know that the, because like the other songs, there's build up, there's music. Yeah. There's like the women singing Before All I Care About. Uh, For Cell Black Tango specifically though, it's another one, another perfect example of like how Roxy's imagining the song that's going to happen.
1: Well, it's, 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 it's disassociation. You know, it's the I'm not really here. It's the only way she can sort of survive jail exactly because right before that moment you know she gets put on herself for the first time and she fully realizes the weight of what she's done and where she's at and what could happen to her and you and you hear oh, it's renee so... zelker crying in the darkness yeah. it's, and it's, it's
0: such a it's such a small moment and then it cuts to the water dripping which yeah. is supposed to be well, like it's... hours later maybe
1: yeah it's in the middle of the night I, i'll say this another sharp for the movie uh taking small moments to recognize the reality of the situation, not so long that it takes away from the entertainment factor, which is the most important thing about it, but enough to show the audience we don't think that this is all just a lark. Like, we we are aware of the the consequences of all of this. What we're right. saying is that in this story, none of it ultimately matters in the end, but, it, but they do exist. Um, so, yeah, I'm going to give that a sharp. I'm going to give a sharp to... Tay Diggs for being a trooper oh and God, announcing yes. everybody. Yep. I would also, I forgot how, I mean, I, I, I know I said everyone is, in this movie is amazing. I forgot just how amazing Queen Latifah is in it. I'm, I forgot how amazing Richard Gere is in it. Because I feel like when we think about this movie, we always think about in terms of the actors, we remember that Catherine fucking slays. We remember that Renee is incredible. And we remember John C. Riley doing Mr. Cellophane. But I think we forget just how hard queen latifah nails when you're good to mama how good gear is in the dialogue as well as his numbers like especially as we look at movie musicals since chicago and how like even the better ones there's always like at least one person where you're like you are not quite up to snuff even like like um even hairspray like we all we'll all disagree on who that person is for us in hairspray but like i don't think anyone has the belief that everyone in that movie nails it but amanda binds is for me in that one and yeah see for me it's actually zach efron but for other people it's john travolta it's like it's it's, okay yeah it's okay yeah yeah, it's like are you a gemini are you a leo are you an aries (laughs) which person hamphrey doesn't nail it for you but for me no one in this movie shits the bed everyone everyone makes the bed so tight you could bounce a quarter off it
0: if anything i just think i want more for everyone (laughs)
1: it's that it's that double-edged sword i'm like i want 30 more minutes of this movie and yet this movie is so perfect i don't want to touch it it. yes exactly yeah i'm
0: i'm scared for the day that there is a remake of this movie of this musical (laughs) i should say not the movie itself the musical because it'll be like with west side it was two different approaches at least it felt like yeah i don't know what anyone can do with chicago because this is perfect, Yeah, we'll
1: see. Listen, West Side was sixty years apart, so we got another forty years to go before someone's like, "I think we should do Chicago again." <laughs> uh, Greta Gerwig's gonna come up in forty years and be like, "Yeah, she should do
0: Chicago again." <laughs> I'm here for it.
1: I uh, mean, I think this movie, I think this episode's coming out around the time Barbie comes out, so that'll be both of our before Barbie, before, oh, before Barbie? Barbie. Okay, you know. so guys, this is who I was before Barbie came out. <laughs> uh, do you have any other sharps? Besides, all of it. The whole the whole fucking thing. Okay. You, John, sharps flats, give it to me. Okay,
0: so uh do I agree with my last ones? Yes, I do wanna emphasize though, like the biggest of sharps to the smoking inmate and all I care about. I don't know. I fucking love like I I think that's just an example of like how perfectly detailed this movie is. Mm -hmm. Like down to she's the only one that has the cigarette in her mouth and she's still singing. Like there is. I love it. Um, Someone is
1: smoking in almost every number in this movie. There's that woman in the opening when the stage manager's walking backstage. There's that woman whose leg is just up on the the bar, smoking a cigarette for no reason. Cheetah. Yeah, and Cheetah.
0: Cheetah. I love that. Okay, so I do have a new flat, and this is going into some weird territory, everyone. (laughs) My flat, and follow me on this one, is how spot on they are with our legal system. i went a little I went a little outside of the box thinking on this one, well, because you know it got me thinking of like all the sensationalized cases that are happening- murder cases and everything. I oddly also thought about o j Simpson that case,
1: not odd baby,
0: yeah, so it's just it it got me thinking, and I'm just like, you know razzle dazzle is really what a being a lawyer is if you think about it. And it's kind
1: of sad. John, do you not know the connection that Chicago has with the O.J. Simpson case? No, I do not. I mean, it's not like, no, it's not anything devastating. It's not like, hey, did you not know that O.J. Simpson put money in the Chicago revival? No, when the Chicago, when Chicago was being done at Encores, because it was done at Encores, I think in the spring of 96, and then it opened that October, November in 96, the O.J. Simpson trial had just happened, which was, huge news right like that was very much a razzle dazzle murder trial so when chicago opened at encores not only did everyone go oh shit this musical is great we forgot how great this is and with like you no know, a no skip score but also just the themes of it are so relevant to what we've just gone through and that makes sense yeah and so and a lot of people have said that like that revival at encores was just so perfectly timed and is part of the reason why it ended up transferring to broadway it's like they planned it almost almost
0: um but like really that's my only new flat i i i we we are hard pressed i've done two episodes and we are hard pressed to find anything really like the cgi never good but you kind of yeah. forgive it
1: it's also that just that one tiny moment you want to know what right. movie has a bunch of shitty C- cgi throughout of it is lame is yes garbage Garbage. Um, i mean
0: and then my last the last time I we did the first chance we did this my flat was just like the shaky camera
1: and i'm like but you
0: like can justify it
1: that was your flat that i mentioned earlier where i was like i'm so glad you said that was a bad flat when you said it john because you're right. right um but, but like again that's, can... that's the ju- that's the john sorbet criticism everybody. Yes.
0: but uh my sh- my i do have some new sharps um i i did it you you didn't sharp this i didn't sharp this last time but now i'm sharpening it the match cuts i it's it's like definition of what a match cut is and if because if nobody knows what it is it's literally you have one scene and then you cut Mm -hmm. to something you cut to something else and it's a similar movement or like you know somebody puts a glass down and it's a like Mm -hmm. it's a mug or something that somebody else is drinking you know it's you're You're comparing two scenes to two moments together, basically. How we
1: come out of Razzle Dazzle of Roxy going uh, up in that little circular hoop and then dropping into the witness stand and then just going right into the next scene. So good. Also, Uh, in Razzle Dazzle, speaking of our legal system, the Justice's blind statue being the woman who plays the Hunyak, all in gold, blindfolded. Fucking amazing. Just put it in my veins. This movie's incredible. Fucking amazing.
0: And then, um, Really, this time watching it, I I'm just sharpening the turn in funny honey. Yeah. No,
1: I'm I'm actually being
0: sincere with this. No, I'm I'm, I'm you, laughing because okay. yes,
1: no, I'm I'm happy. I'm happy right now, John.
0: Yeah, I mean, like I, I I will sharp the whole movie too. I mean, it's a fucking amazing movie. But like the turn in funny honey is just something that, like you talked about it nowadays when we have dream Roxy versus reality Roxy. We're going from. I'm performing. I'm pretending that everything's going to be great, and it's you know I'm nothing's going to happen to you. Oh fuck, he fucked up. Like mm-hmm. fuck you, which I think yeah. starts the the downward spiral of Roxy in the movie turning into a bitch and to like uh, yeah. Um. yeah, a monster. In with just
1: one more brain, what a half would he be? I mean, again, it, she's still sort of in her messy, doe-eyed phase in that moment, but yeah, like, she loves Amos as long as he's covering for her, as long as he's taking the blame, as long as he can help her. Um, right. And and, she's...
0: She, and it's like, it, it's like, oh, this is going to be great, I'm going to get away with it, they're just going to take, take Fred away, and nothing's going to happen, and yep. maybe we'll have a messy conversation, but who cares? But then... Uh, they say the name and then Amos
1: He put he puts the dots together because yeah. all he knows is that a burglar came in and, and you know she shot him. And it's 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 just, it's just very funny. And especially the way that like Renee plays it, because a lot of Roxy's on stage will do the funny honey thing. Because the whole show is just like constantly waking at the audience of like, he a sap? Aren't I just a stinker? And the movie Renée plays it so earnestly at first which actually in my opinion makes it funnier and darker because she's so genuinely like in love with herself in that moment because this man loves her so much and she's like oh right. isn't he just the best he's taking the blame for me yeah. and then when he and then when he tur- and then when he turns she's like oh that fucking idiot it's, just, it's he's he's fucked up you're going up screen well, yeah cuz he <laughs> he has a spine in that one moment where he realizes what's going down and he's like fuck this shit it's oh god it's uh, so, so good, good. she um, can swing for all I care
0: would you add any of the songs
1: to your life's playlist they're all on my life's playlist same uh, <laughs> Yeah. I mean if we're talking to- listen I've I've listened to this soundtrack at the gym a bunch I think if there's one num- if there's a number where like if I'm home alone with the bottle of rosé no pants on which I currently don't have any pants on and I'm just feeling my oats I am fully going to sing along to Roxy because if ever there was a number, especially that arrangement of it and the way that like Renee's got sort of a little lilty laugh in her throat, it's just very, I am the moment. The moment is me. I am the vibe. And I love it very dearly.
0: Are you doing the monologue before as well?
1: I'm always doing the monologue before as well. She's an actress. I
0: love it. But on that note, Matt, I think we're done with the episode. And by the way, we are what do you have to plug or promote
1: well john i'm so glad you asked i have a podcast it's called broadway breakdown it's available wherever you find podcasts it's on the broadway podcast network i will be guesting on a panel at broadway con which will be oh. about yeah, i which will be about 2 to 3 weeks from this episode's release i will be on a panel discussing how to do a theater podcast. I'm assuming I'm on the panel, so they can say, "Now, Matt, what is it that you did?" So our guests know what not to do. But <laughs> we won't know until it happens. Right. So if you're interested, but if you're interested in showing up, I will be on the panel with a few other people: Connor McDowell of Drama, Alana Levine of Little Known Facts,
0: Connor McDowell, also friend of the pod. Oh no way! Pod. yes, I've had both did, of them on.
1: What 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 did they what did they do?
0: They did the Grey's Anatomy. Musical episode. Oh my! God. And then La La Land.
1: Okay, I'm gonna have to listen to the Grey's Anatomy episode. I think my heart will be a little broken listening to them talk about La La Land, but uh-huh. we'll see. I'm sure. I'm I'm one of the few people that's still willing to go to bat for that movie. Not in a sense where I'm willing to die for it, but I'm willing to I'm willing to get a little scuffed up.
0: If memory serves. I was at. One, I had one opinion that wasn't high, and they had another opinion that really loved the movie.
1: Oh, okay. Then that's If fine. I
0: remember correctly.
1: But also, like, John, you having an episode of this podcast, where you're like, but is this movie good? That's, like, always your biggest take. You're... This is... Okay. Well, we're... I we're were wrapping this up, but y'all know this. <laughs> what John loves to do for stirring the pot... Like, John will go into a funeral for a beloved family member, and he'll be like, but, like, did we all like them? And then just, like, walk away. And just and just see what happens. I'm not that bad. It... <laughs>
0: no. No, again, because- I'd, I'd be the i I'm I think I'm more the one at the wedding when they're like, if anyone objects, and I'm just slowly raising my hand, and somebody else is knocking it down. That think- or I'm also pushing it down. No,
1: you're the one at the bachelor party where you're like, are you sure? And then if they say, <laughs> and and then like, and then they go, yes, I'm sure. And then you go, okay, pretend I said nothing, and then you like walk away. Okay, but, I had a stupid reason. Bye. Yeah, it's again, it's the sorbet opinion where it's not so much that John's like willing to die for it. But he does want to put it on the table to see if anybody else wants to have a bite and then like we'll put it away if no one does. Content. <laughs> it's yeah, it's great. It's wonderful. We love it so much. Uh but yeah, so Broadway Breakdown, Broadway Con and do You know uh, what day your Broadway Con thing is? I do. I will pull it up on my phone. My phone who I've na- named Nev Campbell. Oh, also you can follow me on Instagram at my coplic, usual spelling. Not to uh-huh. brag, but it's a pretty solid Instagram to follow. Uh saturday july it. 22nd
0: saturday july 22nd um i will probably share it in the story or whatever you know just Woo! to like yeah get some buzz going for me. the th- for the 10 people
1: who follow me uh and look you at have stuff. more than 10 it's like 32 now yeah you're right it's 32 uh have to fill a black box theater in greenwich village
0: honey <laughs> um if you haven't seen this movie yet chicago i'd like to know about it so this way then we can talk about how you think about how you feel about the the music and everything and the justifications because we fucking love it obviously yeah
1: and if you if you don't love the movie i would love to hear your reasons as to why because i only know one person who uh, so i know two people who don't like this movie uh one of whom is a diehard stage chicago fan And then the other one actually has issues with Renee's performance. And the only reason this person and I are still friends is because I will not let him speak his notes on them. (laughs) But I want to hear them. So if you're Matt's friend
0: that doesn't like it, let me know. I want to hear. Prescott, reach out to John. (laughs) You can email me at butasungpod at gmail.com I'm also on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at butasungpod. This movie's great. I have no other call to action because nobody does it anyway. So if you want to be part of next episode's conversation, we're going to be going back to Disney everyone and talking about Hercules. Uh uh Hercules fucking finally. Matt, thank you so much. Thank I this you. is this was great. I mean, you always pick some fun ones to talk about and I'm just like go. I know you Even you're the
1: ones that aren't good are still fun to talk They're about. fun. Yeah.
0: Yeah, Teen Witch
1: top that. Did I pick Team Witch? No. I brought up Team Witch to you and then you're like, "What if that's our Halloween episode?" and I was like, "Oh girl, get yourself ready."
0: Yes, that's that's right. Uh and everyone, thank you for listening and bye for now. Bye. Special thanks to Justin Johnson for creating the podcast's artwork and to Nick Bombacino for composing the theme song and the jingles in this podcast. And thank you to CastBox for hosting this podcast. Bye again, everyone, and have a musical day.